Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Tepi Podcast, a series where you can hear from the diverse voices of people working and learning towards peace in Northeast Asia. In the last episode, we got to hear from An Ngyung, who shared about her experience as a teacher implementing restorative practice with her students. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, be sure to go check it out. In this episode, though, you'll be hearing from Mary Joyce. Since 2005, Mary has been international coordinator of Japan-based international organization PeaceBoat. PeaceBoat is the regional secretariat for the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict, or GPAC, in Northeast Asia. And Mary is the regional liaison officer for GPAC in the region. In this capacity, she coordinates various peacebuilding, disarmament, sustainability, and conflict prevention-related programs within Japan and Northeast Asia. Amongst these projects is the Ulaanbaatar process, a civil society dialogue process for confidence and capacity building in Northeast Asia, launched in 2015. Mary also sits on the steering committee for the Northeast Asia Regional Peacebuilding Institute, or NARPI, and is an advisory board member of Women Cross DMZ, and is involved in various coordination work as part of Peaceboat's role as an international steering group member of the 2017 Nobel Peace Laureate, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. In addition, she is also active as an interpreter and translator between Japanese and English. In 2020, Mary was appointed as a Goodwill Ambassador for Peace on the Korean Peninsula by the Republic of Korea Minister for Unification. In short, Mary has a lot of experience and insight into discussions of peacebuilding in Northeast Asia. She shares some of that insight with us in this conversation, so be sure to listen through to the end. So without further delay, here is Mary Joyce. So Mary, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to get to talk with you. For those who maybe don't know who you are or know about your background, could you give us just a little introduction into yourself and the work that you're doing? Sure. First of all, thanks so much for the chance to talk to you. I'm really looking forward to it. So my name is Mary Joyce, and I'm based in Tokyo, where I work with an NGO called Peaceboat. Particularly within that work, I work a lot on coordinating different networks and cooperation uh, between different organizations, civil society groups in Northeast Asia, and also further afar than that on issues related to mostly peacebuilding and disarmament. And with Peaceboat, could you tell us kind of like what type of work Peace Boat is involved with? Obviously, there's peace and there's a boat. Uh, <laughs> sure. but, but a little and there actually really is a boat that's something that a lot of people maybe don't necessarily expect even though we have it in the name so peace boat is a japanese organization it was started by a group of japanese university students back in 1983 actually and it was at the time when in japan of course it's an issue that continues today but there was a lot of censorship about history textbooks for example covering mm -hmm. up a lot of the reality of japan's past of aggression in the age of Pacific region. So this group of university students, they felt that, well, just, you know, 
listening to what they hear in their classrooms or what they saw in the Japanese television, they felt that they really were not seeing the full story. And so they wanted to go and reach out and actually visit some of these different other countries within the Asia Pacific region and hear firsthand, you know, what it was that people in these different countries were thinking about Japan and what it was that that their experiences of, of this history as well. But at the time for university students, you know, to travel by airplane was something pretty uh out of reach considering the costs and so on for air yeah. travel at the time so they yeah. decided to travel by ship and then it started out just as a one-time project uh, traveling to different countries in the asia pacific and hearing firsthand from you know survivors of the war and so on but then they realized that actually the space on board the ship you can use that as a space for a dialogue for activities which you know, it's, it's out at sea, it doesn't belong to any one particular country or one particular organization. So they really found that it was a, a great space for having these kind of dialogues and activities and started to develop from what was just a one-off project that they thought it would just be one trip and that would be it. They organized annual voyages from there. And then in the 1990s, it started to organize global voyages as well. And that's what we continue to do today. Of course, now under the pandemic, the actual physical voyages are not happening. But prior to COVID-19, we were organizing three global voyages and then two regional voyages just within sort of Northeast Asia or East Asia every year with about 1,000 people on board every one of these trips. And of these 1,000 people, are they mostly still Japanese students or are the global voyages more international passengers or how, how is the demographics? They're becoming more and more international as we go along, actually. They did start out mostly Japanese, uh, not only students, but people really from all walks of life in Japan, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. people from, you know, teenagers right up to people in their 80s or 90s even. Oh, wow. But in recent years, it's actually expanded and there's a lot more other participants from different Asian countries, uh, from mainland China, from Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, and from Korea as well. Once a year, we also organize what we call the Peace and Green Boat Voyage, mm. which is something we actually do as a joint project together with a Korean environmental NGO called the Green Foundation. Mm -hmm. And they bring 500 people on board and we bring 500 people on board. So it's sort of a Japan-Korea joint project that oh, we wow. do once a year usually as well. Yeah, that sounds very collaborative. That's awesome. And you said that there's a Northeast Asia program as well as a global voyage. Where does the global voyage go to? Yeah, so the global voyages are usually for three months. So they'll start out in Japan and go to a couple of different places throughout, you know, Asia, Northeast and Southeast Asia. From there, it usually heads across through South Asia, so India or Sri Lanka, and then up either going down on a southern route, so going down around the, the bottom of Africa and then across to Latin America and the Pacific back home. Or sometimes instead of going down to South Africa, it will go up through the Suez Canal to Europe and then Northern and Latin America and then through the northern part of the Pacific heading back as well. So it's about a three-month trip. You mentioned originally it was uh, university students wanting to get a broader perspective about the kind of traumas and pains of, of the war um, beyond what the Japanese media was talking about, but kind of has it expanded if it's kind of traveling globally now? Is this the kind of peace education component? Is it kind of branching into other areas as well, or is it mostly kind of uh, post-World War II kind of pain and peace building types of content? Yeah, I would say the the post-World War II and sort of the peace building and listening to the voices of survivors educational aspect is really still at the, the core or the heart mm -hmm. of the activities, but it has really broadened out a lot, both in terms of 
not only the geographical focus, but also the issues that we're looking at as well. And I think that was something that developed through the process of realizing that these issues, they are all tied into you know, colonialism, they're tied into the environment, into you know, now looking at, for example, the connections with climate and, and how that's connected to conflict and this sort of thing as well. And so it's really broadened out to a lot of different global and social issues and then looking at how they're interconnected, how they're impacting the places that we're visiting, but then also how that connects back to your own situation, even, you know, your own community or home or country mm -hmm. where the travelers are coming from as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you originally get connected with Peace Boat? Because you're not originally from Tokyo. I'm not. No, uh, obviously, I'm originally from Australia, from a city called Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And I actually studied in Japan when I was in high school. I went oh, on a student exchange program for a year. Mm -hmm. And that was where I sort of first started to get uh, interested in or, or learning more about these issues and the perspectives of, you know, history of the region from a very different angle to what I'd grown up learning about as well. And then during university, I went back and studied in Japan once more. And then that was the first time when I, I heard about Peace Boat's activities. I didn't really know much about the organization at all, but they, every voyage, recruit a team of volunteer interpreters who join the trip. And so they go on board to help to facilitate, of course, the different lectures by guest speakers who are coming on board or the different you know, places that you're visiting in ports of coal, but also the communication between passengers who are coming from different countries as well. Mm -hmm. So I thought that sounded like a, a pretty fun thing to do for three months, um, yeah. thinking I would be going on board just for one time and then go back and find something else to do. But mm -hmm. that was more than 15 years ago. And I'm, I'm still here, still working with the organization after this time as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, a decent amount of time, 15 years. In that yeah, in longer that, than I expected. <laughs> yeah, I find that happens with most people who come <laughs> to Northeast Asia to do kind of peace building work it tends to last a little bit longer. Um, yeah. So in that 15 years that you've been working with Peace Boat, how have you seen the conversations around peace in Northeast Asia and uh, different issues like that develop or change? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, one of the reasons that probably a lot of us tend to, to stay working in this field for so long is that peace building in Northeast Asia is, as you know, something a very long term project. We're talking mm -hmm. about very long term, you know, conflicts or or tensions which have been continuing and really needing long term solutions as well. So in that sense, there are some parts which unfortunately, you know, haven't changed as much as mm -hmm. might hope in 15 years. But at the same time, I think looking at, um, first of all, within the region, looking at some of the really exciting, you know, civil society or citizens or youth-led initiatives which are coming up um, all throughout different parts of the region is very exciting. At the same time, I think maybe the the way that peace issues in Northeast Asia are looked at from other parts of the world has changed a lot. You know, we saw maybe the there was the different issues through the US DPRK, you know, summits and, you know, for better or for worse, you know, Trump bringing Korea onto the international agenda in that sense. And then now looking at the situation between the US and China and so on, I think more and more people around the world are starting to realize that, you know, issues about building peace in Northeast Asia are actually really crucial issues for the whole world to be paying attention to as well. Yeah, I've noticed that as well, kind of, when I, I've been in Korea for six years, as you probably yeah. know, and even in that time, kind of seeing the way friends back home are starting to think differently about North-South Korea relations or U.S.-China mm -hmm. relations, or um, even seeing in Korea and uh, working with 
different peace organizations, the way young students are starting to interact differently than maybe their parents' yeah. generation had. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting to see those changes start to happen slowly. Yeah. And I think the more that, that can be done with, you know, even like this podcast about, you know, getting issues about peace building in Northeast Asia out to places in other parts of the world that don't necessarily speak the local languages as well. I mean, there's so much happening in this region, but there's not necessarily a whole lot of information accessible if you're not, you know, a Korean speaker or a Chinese speaker or a Japanese speaker and so on. And the other way around as well, I think a lot of the peace movements here can feel somewhat kind of isolated in a way because you know things that are happening in English in other parts of the world are not necessarily easily accessible to many people so I think that the efforts like like this podcast or things that we're trying to do as part of some of the networks that Peacebolt is involved in is really important to try and raise some of these agendas and also really highlight the the really exciting initiatives that are actually happening in this part of the world that perhaps people don't necessarily have a chance to learn more about yeah yeah you mentioned how when you first got started with Peaceboat, it was a little bit of interpretation or translation. Beyond the language, English to Japanese or Japanese to English, also like you were just mentioning, the the translating of kind of peace issues across maybe cultural mm. lines. Um, yeah. What has that been like for you? Maybe either talking to people back home about issues in Northeast Asia or maybe yeah. trying to bridge between organizations that are in uh, either Europe or the US or other countries that are trying to partner with Peaceboat? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess a lot of the the work that we're doing at Peaceboat and personally the project which, which I'm coordinating is uh, part of a network called the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict or GPAC. Mm -hmm. It's a very long name, unfortunately, yeah. but basically it's a network of peacebuilding uh, organizations around the world. Um, and we have 15 different networks and Peaceboat is coordinating the Northeast Asia regional network. There's also, you know, there's groups in, in Southeast Asia, in, you know, Latin America, in different parts of the world that have their own different processes and agenda that they're doing. But within Northeast Asia, I think what's, what's really uh important to recognize is of course how much the different you know tensions and the issues which are happening today are all really linked to this historical legacy and these historical issues which are still yet to be resolved i think that's something which often is maybe un i'm not sure if underestimated is the right word but it's not necessarily easy to understand fully unless you're really here and see how that tangibly impacts you know people's lives and perspectives and education and and how mm -hmm people interact with with each other how governments interact with each other so i think bringing that the understanding of things on that really deeper level is something which um is not always easy from from outside of the region but i think in a way that's how i personally have kind of found that there is somewhat of a role to play as someone who comes from outside the region i mean australia mm -hmm. is somewhat geographically close but of course it's it's separate in a way as mm -hmm. well so mm -hmm. when we are looking at you know building dialogues between people from um, japan from both koreas from china together and so on you know if i were a japanese person coming from a japanese ngo to facilitate this kind of dialogue that's a very different thing to someone coming who is from a little bit of an outsider sort of perspective mm -hmm. as well. So there's mm -hmm. pros and cons, I think, in in how that, but there's the more and more that can be done to to just have opportunities to learn those different perspectives, to hear those different experiences, I think is still really, really crucial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like the way you phrase that opportunity to learn different experiences and see different perspectives. I think mm -hmm. as I've kind of been able to 
kind of be in some of these spaces where uh, some of these conversations about historical harms or peace building across borders or things like that are happening, realizing mm -hmm. that the the more diverse perspectives that you can include at the table, especially in a region that yeah. has so many different perspectives, really I think deepens that conversation. And like we've talked yeah. about, kind of it takes time, but yeah, I think that's one of the first first steps for sure. Yeah, yeah, very much. And I think that's, you know, even on the, the personal level, while while travel and, you know, tourism between different countries in Northeast Asia might have become a lot more um, you know, active in the past years, there are still very few opportunities for people to, you know, meet each other on a personal level between these different countries. And then also when it comes to countries like North Korea, for example, you know, there's lack of diplomatic relations between, you know, most mm -hmm. parts of the region. And it's, you know, almost impossible to have these discussions about what's happening in Northeast Asia in an inclusive way, which actually has voices from all parts of the region. So that's something mm -hmm. that we're, we're really trying to do as GPAC, as the network, as well as to create these kind of spaces where at the very least we can have a safe platform for participation from people from diverse backgrounds from each part of the region as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know in a lot of your work, you're working with civil society organizations, but I think some of your work is also collaborating with academics and grassroots activists. Yeah. And we're talking about these different perspectives. I think sometimes academic perspectives and activist perspectives they can collaborate a lot but also they can bring these different uh, values or different approaches to peace building mm. and that can sometimes I've seen create tensions and so sure. I'm wondering in your work what have you noticed as important for these partnerships of different perspectives in terms of uh, maybe academic perspectives to peace building and grassroots activist perspectives to peace building Sure. Yeah, I think that that's a really important uh, factor, and it's it's also, as you said, you know, it's not something that's always necessarily very easy. Mm -hmm. We do very deliberately uh, try and ensure that we have collaboration, you know, through through these different you know sectors, you know, right from the grassroots through through to academics as well. And I think what's really important, or one of the things which is really achieved through that, is remembering that you know, these are not abstract issues that we're talking about. When we're talking about peace and security, it's not just talking about you know, numbers on a page, but this is talking about actual people's lives, people's experiences, people's, mm -hmm. you know, um, what they're going through on a day-to-day on -day basis. And I think that that's something which it's so important to ensure that those grassroots perspectives are in included within that, but then also to have the, the sort of academic angle, I guess, puts that also into the broader context there as well, saying, you know, these are not isolated incidents, but it's all part of these these systems or these mechanisms and, and that sort of thing as well. So mm -hmm. it's it's not always easy, you know, as as you say, often come in with with very different ways of looking at the world. But I think the more and more the same as having more perspectives from different backgrounds in terms of different countries and so on, the same more and more different backgrounds from your approach to, to dealing mm -hmm. with these issues is also really important, I think. I like that approach. That seems I think really helpful and necessary and such like you're saying, such a uh, an issue that's can be so contentious but also so directly impact people's lives yeah and I think especially in Northeast Asia you know it's it's not necessarily a part of the world which civil society you know traditionally has a very large voice you know what well there may be some parts of the region where you know civil society has had huge huge impacts and you know I mean the you know the candlelight revolution it's incredible but then other parts of the region where 
peace and security issues aren't necessarily something where it's seen that civil society should even have a voice, you know, in a lot of countries which tend to be a lot more, you know, conservative in, in terms of their space for citizens' participation in politics and that sort of thing. So I think that collaboration on, on those different lines also helps to expand that space for, for citizens' groups or civil society groups to have a voice as well, where on their own, maybe it might not be so easy to, to access or to have the voice sort of heard in a way. Yeah, yeah. Kind of shifting a little bit, I wanted to ask, in speaking about peace and security in Northeast Asia, one thing that often comes up is conversations about nuclear weapons and DPRK and yeah. um, the, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, trying to limit the spread of, of nuclear weapons but I've heard some critiques that that NPT can kind of be unequal from the perspective of smaller countries uh, sure. who feel like this is imposed by kind of these larger global powers who mm. are really, in a sense, getting to, to keep their weapons, but then say no one else gets to have them. And um, so from sure, a, a sure. peace perspective, that could be perhaps challenging. So I was wondering if you've had any conversations that are kind of trying to take a more just approach or a more creative approach to that threat of nuclear weapons? Sure, yeah, um, very much so. And I think that that is something that, you know, it's a really important point to think about when, I mean, when we think about the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, for example, you know, this was something which was negotiated and agreed upon, you know, at the height of the Cold War, you know, in the late 1960s. And it's a very different world that we're living in now. But first of all, the fact that that treaty has in, in its very core, the fact that some countries can have nuclear weapons and other countries cannot, you know, that's something that when we're coming at it from a peace perspective, of course, you know, we think that all, no country should, should have these weapons and we should be working towards making sure that all of them are eliminated. You know, even one of these weapons held by one country is still a threat to people's peace, people's lives and so on as well. So mm -hmm. the, the main, I think, approach that, that we've been doing a lot of work in actually is uh, in connection with Peace Boat's participation in a coalition called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons or ICAN. Mm -hmm. And the, the goal of ICANN, which is a campaign that was set up um, sort of a little bit more than 10 years ago, was to work towards a treaty which goes one step further than this and actually prohibits all nuclear weapons. This uh, treaty actually did happen thanks to the effort of ICANN and many different uh, civil society and also governments, particularly of smaller governments, you know, who, who, as you say, felt that, you know, their, their voice was not necessarily being reflected. So the treaty um, was adopted at the United Nations in 2017, and ICANN was actually awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for its role in that, in that very year as well. And then in January this year, in 2010-1, the treaty finally came into effect. And so this means that actually under international law now, nuclear weapons, not only their use or their um, know having these weapons but also even the development of them or supporting the development of them is also prohibited so this is a huge step which i think is attempting to deal with some of those issues including the you know inequalities that are included within the npt as you mentioned but the other really important points from that also that and i think the fact that civil society had such a huge role in making this treaty in a reality is the fact that and it comes back to the point that we were just talking about in terms of 
the human perspectives of this or looking at this from not only a you know, security issue and theories on paper, but from a humanitarian perspective, thinking about if any one of these weapons to be used, what that would actually mean for humanity, you know, mean for our planet. The weapons that exist now are completely different to those that were you know, used in the 1940s. And even that we saw the, the horrific consequences that they had. Mm -hmm. And so what was really key there actually was having the voices of the survivors. So both the Hibakusha, mm -hmm. the survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also people from, for example, my country, Australia, who are impacted by nuclear testing in Australia and also by uranium mining. Mm -hmm. Also people from the Pacific Islands who have suffered so much through you know, these huge amounts of, of nuclear tests happening on their land and in their waters and so having the the voices of these people who are i mean they're the real experts in nuclear mm -hmm. weapons they're the ones that actually know exactly what happens right. when these are used on their their communities and so having their voices at the center of the campaign was i think what really made it possible to actually create this new treaty and bring that uh, so that it entered into force as well so i think that bringing these humanitarian uh, aspects when we're looking at nuclear weapons issue is something which is, it's been the real game changer. It still has, you know, more, a lot more work that needs to be done to bring more and more countries supporting the treaty. But I think this is a way to look at a more just approach and a more creative approach that's bringing the discussion of nuclear weapons on a more human level. And I think that's the way that you can really affect real change. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that bringing that human level and that kind of more abstract policy level together and kind of mm. meeting meeting at a point where listening to the experiences of people who are actually affected by these policies I think yeah. can really shape the policies not only in a more just way but mm. from what I've seen also in a way that kind of I think breaks out of some of the misconceptions that can kind of prevent yeah. these policies from actually providing justice and and meeting the needs of people who are being affected by them and so yeah, yeah that's yeah, really that's very exciting true. to hear yeah that's great so i know at times this work of, of doing peace building or trying to craft these um these policies or set up these conversations or do all of the stuff that's involved with the type of work that you're doing can kind of be like an uphill slog at times <laughs> i think um <laughs> Uh, especially if you've been doing it for quite a while. But I'm wondering, uh, what's some of the glimmers of hope that you've seen in your work recently or things that are inspiring you in what you're doing? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's it's very true about the slow uphill <laughs> climb. Um, you just got to keep climbing there, I guess. But the, I mean, the developments in, in regards to nuclear disarmament that I just mentioned have been, you know, huge glimmers of hope, I think, and showing that, you know, what for decades people have said is not possible can actually be done when you do have, you know, civil society and survivors and academics and governments working together for a common goal. And I think the fact that that was able to achieve the treaty at the United Nations and that that was recognized, you know, even with the Nobel Prize, I think highlights that there is, it is possible to actually make this kind of change. Um, but, you know, there's there's still a very long way to go as well. And when you look at well, whether that actually changes people's realities in places that are, you know, living with these threats of nuclear weapons and so on, of course, there's still 
a lot a lot more work that needs to be done at the same time mm -hmm. i think you know looking at from in a more perspective in in northeast asia as well you know as you mentioned there's they might be quite small efforts but there's so many really sort of exciting or innovative different new projects or initiatives or conversations which are happening which i think are are really glimmers of hope and really exciting to see what what they'll be leading to in the sort of time as they're coming as well. So mm -hmm. they're small steps, but th there's always something happening, which means that there's always some some hope there and some, mm -hmm. you know, wanting to move forward as well. Yeah, yeah. Was there anything that I didn't ask about your work that you wanted to share, or things that Peace Boat's doing, or any of the other organizations you're working with? I know you're you're involved with quite a few, so. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the work that I'm doing is kind of, of course, I'm, I'm based at, at Peace Boat, but yeah. in bringing together different organizations or, or trying to use, I mean, Peace Boat as our voyages, we hope, or we try to use those as a platform for bringing different people together, different organizations and issues and so on. And so personally, that's, that's a lot of the work that I'm doing as well, as you mentioned. I think maybe, maybe I might just mention that, you know, at the moment, although our voyages themselves are not running, we're, we're doing a lot of different projects online which are always open for many different people to become part of um, when it comes to I mean we spoke a lot about the nuclear issue today so maybe to share a couple of those one is that usually on Peace Boats Voyages, we invite, you know, as we mentioned, survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but not only Japanese survivors, also Korean survivors, also survivors of nuclear tests around the world to travel with us on board and give their testimonies in different ports of call. And that actually has had a real um, role in helping the momentum for the nuclear ban treaty, which I mentioned, and, you know, hearing those firsthand stories and so on. So we've been actually shifting that project online this year. So we've been holding different testimony sessions with different school groups or, or citizen groups and so on around the world. I think we've held them in about uh, 50 different places so far in different countries all around the world. And we're still looking for more uh, different organizations or individuals who are keen to host that kind of session. So that's, first of all, something I'd really like to share the invitation if there's anyone interested to work with us on an event like that. Um, we'd love to hear. And then we're actually going to be gathering these different messages together and the different voices that have been heard in response uh, to these sessions all around the world to share them at the first meeting of the countries which have joined the nuclear ban treaty, which is going to take place in March next year in Vienna. So that's one exciting thing that we're working on. Mm. Uh, the other thing in the GPAC network, which I mentioned as well, where, you know, while this year under the pandemic, you know, it hasn't been possible to actually meet with people physically across borders or internationally. Um, we're hoping that from next year, we can also be doing a lot more different projects um, in Northeast Asia, creating different trainings or dialogue sessions or different things for people to, to come together and have more opportunities to, you know, as we said, share those different perspectives and experiences on peace and security in the region. And we're always looking for different new ideas or people to collaborate with and that sort of thing as well. So if there's um, anyone who'd be interested in learning more about what we're doing as part of the GPAC network, I'd be really excited to connect as well. Yeah, wow, those all sound like great opportunities. I'll be sure to add some links in the podcast description for anybody <laughs> who's interested. Yeah. Well, Mary, it's been a pleasure getting to hear about your work. Uh, thank you so much for sharing and for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me and thanks for making this series. It's been great to listen to all the other sessions as well. So that was Mary Joyce. 
I hope you were able to learn something new or perhaps gain a fresh perspective on something old. If you're interested in checking out any of the projects Mary mentioned, you can find links to more info in the podcast description of this episode. As you likely already know, the field of peacebuilding is a diverse, multifaceted field of practice and study. The guests on this podcast each bring their own perspective from their background, which I hope has become a valuable resource for your own practice and study. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or follow on SoundCloud. If you're interested in the other work Tepi does, you can check us out at momotepi.org. That's all I have for you today. I'll talk to you in the next episode with another guest sharing their perspective on peace in Northeast Asia.